to the Fiorella Files. Next, our library tour leads us to the classics and the must-read because Chesterton would read section. And one of those classics that has rather fallen out of favour in recent years but is written by one of the most famous authors of the 20th century and that is The Road to Wigan Pier by George Orwell. Of course, George Orwell is famous for writing 1984, and many of you will also have read Animal Farm. Those are the two books he is most well known for, and 1984 was voted the book of the 20th century. Certainly, few books have been as influential in terms of our political language than 1984. But this is a book that I really think bears revisiting the road to Wigan Pier. Rather uninspiring title, but very interesting subject matter. But before I talk a little bit about George Orwell and the book itself, I'm going to read you a passage from the book as a preview to the review. The Road to Wigan Pier by George Orwell, 1937. Chapter One. The first sound in the mornings was the clumping of the mill girls' clogs down the cobbled street. Earlier than that, I suppose, there were factory whistles, which I was never awake to hear. There were generally four of us in the bedroom, and a beastly place it was, with that defiled, impermanent look of rooms that are not serving their rightful purpose. Years earlier, the house had been an ordinary dwelling house, and when the Brookers had taken it and fitted it out as a tripe shop and lodging house, they had inherited some of the more useless pieces of furniture and had never had the energy to remove them. We were therefore sleeping in what was still recognisably a drawing room. Hanging from the ceiling there was a heavy glass chandelier on which the dust was so thick that it was like fur, and covering most of one wall there was a huge hideous piece of junk, something between a sideboard and a hall stand, with lots of carving and little drawers and strips of looking-glass, and there was a once gaudy carpet ringed by the slop-pails of years, and two gilt chairs with burst seats, and one of those old-fashioned horsehair armchairs which you slide off when you try to sit on them. The room had been turned into a bedroom by thrusting four squalid beds in amongst this other wreckage. My bed was in the right-hand corner of the side nearest the door. There was another bed across the foot of it, jammed hard against it. It had to be in that position to allow the door to open. So I had to sleep with my legs doubled up. If I straightened them, I kicked the occupant of the other bed in the small of the back. He was an elderly man named Mr Riley, a mechanic of sorts and employed on top at one of the coal pits. Luckily, he had to go to work at five in the morning so I could uncoil my legs and have a couple of hours proper sleep after he had gone. In the bed opposite, there was a Scottish miner who'd been injured in a pit accident. A huge chunk of stone pinned him to the ground and it was a couple of hours before they could lever it off and had received £500 compensation. He was a big, handsome man of 40 with grizzled hair and a clipped moustache, more like a sergeant major than a miner and he would lie in bed till late in the day, smoking a short pipe. The other bed was occupied by a succession of commercial travellers, newspaper canvassers, and higher-purchased touts, who generally stayed for a couple of nights. 
It was a double bed and much the best in the room. I had slept in it myself my first night there, but had been manoeuvred out of it to make room for another lodger. I believe all newcomers spent their first night in the double bed, which was used, so to speak, as bait. All the windows were kept tight shut with a red sandbag jammed in the bottom, and in the morning the room stank like a ferret's cage. You did not notice it when you got up, but if you went back out of the room and came back, the smell hit you in the face with a smack. I never discovered how many bedrooms the house contained, but strange to say, there was a bathroom, dating from before the Brooker's time. Downstairs there was the usual kitchen living room with its huge open range burning day and night. It was lighted only by a skylight, for on one side of it was the shop, and on the other the larder, which opened into some dark subterranean place where the tripe was stored. Partly blocking the door of the larder there was a shapeless sofa, upon which Mrs Brooker, our landlady, lay permanently ill, festooned in grimy blankets. She had a big, pale, yellow, anxious face. No one knew for certain what was the matter with her. I suspect that her only real trouble was overeating. In front of the fire there was almost always a line of damp washing, and in the middle of the room was the big kitchen table at which the family and all the lodgers ate. I never saw this table completely uncovered, but I saw its various wrappings at different times. At the bottom there was a layer of old newspapers, stained by Worcester sauce. Above that a sheet of sticky white oilcloth. Above that a green serge cloth. Above that a coarse linen cloth, never changed and seldom taken off. Generally the crumbs from breakfast were still on the table at supper. I used to get to know individual crumbs by sight and watch their progress up and down the table from day to day. The shop was a narrow, cold sort of room. On the outside of the window a few white letters, relics of ancient chocolate advertisements, were scattered like stars. Inside there was a slab upon which lay the great white folds of tripe, and the grey stuff known as black tripe, and the ghostly translucent feet of pigs ready-boiled. It was the ordinary tripe and pea shop, and not much else was stocked except bread, cigarettes and tinned stuff. Teas were advertised in the window, but if a customer demanded a cup of tea, he was usually put off with excuses. Mr Brooker, though out of work for two years, was a miner by trade, but he and his wife had been keeping shops of various kinds as a sideline all their lives. At one time they'd had a pub, but they'd lost their licence for allowing gambling on the premises. I doubt whether any of their businesses had ever paid. They were the kind of people who run a business chiefly in order to have something to grumble about. Mr Brooker was a dark, small-boned, sour, Irish-looking man, and astonishingly dirty. I don't think I ever once saw his hands clean. As Mrs Brooker was now an invalid, he prepared most of the food, and like all people with permanently dirty hands, he had a peculiarly intimate, lingering manner of handling things. If he gave you a slice of bread and butter, there was always a black thumbprint on it. Even in the early morning, when he descended into the mysterious den behind Mrs Brooker's sofa and fished out the tripe, his hands were already black. I heard dreadful stories from the other lodgers about the place where the tripe was kept. Black beetles were said to swarm there. I do not know how often fresh consignments of tripe were ordered, but it was at long intervals, for Mrs Brooker used to date events by it. 
Let me see now. I've had in three lots of froze, frozen tripe since that happened, etc., etc. We lodgers were never given tripe to eat. At the time, I imagined that this was because tripe was too expensive. I have since thought that it was merely because we knew too much about it. The brookers never ate tripe themselves, I noticed. That gives you a pretty good idea of the grimy world of 1930s mining life that George Orwell wished to convey to his middle-class readers. George Orwell needs almost no introduction, but his is the sort of life that is quite often forgotten about. He's a name, he's the subject of many a meme and quotation book. His name was not even his own, it was a nom de plume. His actual name was Eric Arthur Blair, and he had a tragically short life. He died at the age of only 47 in 1950. But he is most famous as a novelist, though he was also a journalist, essayist and literary critic. He'd uh, also worked as a policeman in the colonial service, which had a very major impact on his political views. The Road to Wigan Pier was published in 1937 and it was his report, as it were, of working class life in the industrial heartlands of England, up in the north of England. That was where the collieries were, where the coal was mined, where the factories and mills were, the industrial heartlands. And even though this is a very dated book in some respects, I also think it is quite relevant because it is important to see what life was like just before the war in Britain. It's very easy to forget that this whole period exists and to forget, in fact, how difficult life was for the working classes of England right up until the establishment of the welfare state in the late 40s with the beginnings of the Labour government. What the story is about, what the book is about, is the plight of 20 million destitute people. George Orwell, I will say this for him, he attempted to live among the people he was writing about. This was not a completely outside observation. As that opening chapter shows, he went and lived in those boarding houses. He went down the mines with the miners to see what their work was actually like. He went into their homes. He sat at their tables. So this is a pretty good study as far as it is possible for a man of Orwell's privileges to study the conditions of people whose lives were very different to his. It is absolutely terrifying reading. One can forget quite quickly how dangerous the coal mines were. It's very easy to forget that millions of people in England before the war lived hungry lives in absolute squalor, with no safety nets, they could be exploited, they could work insane hours doing hard manual labour that would take them to an early grave. 
and there was virtually nobody representing them and nobody looking out for them. 